Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Did you know that it used to be illegal for married couples to use birth control? Did you know that the Supreme Court only overturned states' laws prohibiting birth control 55 years ago? I did not know that until I did some research in preparation for today's texts. We will be discussing Margaret Sanger's 1918 essay, The Morality of Birth Control, and her 1934 essay, The Case for Birth Control. And here I just want to begin by emphasizing that this project at Breaking Down Patriarchy highlights essential texts that describe the construct of patriarchy and the critiques that have challenged it throughout history. Um, During each episode, we include a biography of the author of the text we're discussing, but that's only to give background and context to the important piece of writing that the person produced. There are other podcasts out there whose purpose is to tell the stories of amazing women, like um, History Chicks is a really great one that I've listened to, um, Encyclopedia Womanica, and What's Her Name um, are all really excellent podcasts that are biography-centric. Um, But our project is about important documents on a historical timeline. And in some ways, the author of a certain text might not necessarily be exemplary. And I say this because the author of this week's text, Margaret Sanger, is a controversial figure. Um, She was an American birth control activist, a sex educator, a writer, and a nurse working in the World War I era and the 1920s and 30s. And, and beyond in the 40s and 50s as well. She popularized the term birth control, opened the first birth control clinic in the United States, and established organizations that evolved into Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Um, her essays, The Morality in Birth Control and The Case for Birth Control, were critically important in challenging patriarchal norms. And they're found on almost every women's history reading list. But Sanger was also involved in the eugenics movement, and she rubbed shoulders with some very racist people. Um, And some have accused Sanger herself of racist views. And because of that, some organizations have disavowed her. And so I just want to start by saying that we at Breaking Down Patriarchy disavow and condemn racism in every form, full stop. So today, as in every episode, we will simply be examining these texts and their significance on our historical timeline as we strive to understand patriarchy and its critiques. Um, But also before we continue the discussion, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Courtney McPhee. Hi, Courtney, and welcome back to Breaking Down Patriarchy. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Let's dive in and learn a little bit about the author of these texts, Morality and Birth Control and the Case for Birth Control, which is Margaret Sanger. So Courtney, could you introduce us to this author? Absolutely. Sanger was born Margaret Louise Higgins in 1879 in Corning, New York, to Irish Catholic parents. Her mother, Anne Purcell, had left Ireland during the potato famine and married Michael Higgins in 1869. In 22 years, Anne Higgins conceived 18 times, birthing 11 alive before dying at age 49. Margaret was the sixth of 11 surviving children, spending her childhood doing household chores and caring for family members. 
Supported by her two older sisters, Margaret Higgins attended Claverett College and Hudson River Institute before enrolling in 1900 at White Plains Hospital as a nurse probationer. In 1902, she married architect William Sanger, giving up her education. She suffered consumption, which we now call tuberculosis, but Margaret Sanger was able to bear three children and the family eventually settled in New York City. Sanger's political interests, her emerging feminism, and her nursing experience all led her to write two series of columns on sex education, which were titled What Every Mother Should Know from 1911 to 1912 and What Every Girl Should Know from 1912 to 1913. These were in the socialist magazine New York Call. By the standards of the day, Sanger's articles were extremely frank in their discussion of sexuality, and many New York Call readers were outraged by them. At the time Sanger was writing, access to contraceptive information was prohibited on grounds of obscenity by the 1873 federal Comstock law and many state laws. All mentions of female reproductive function and any type of birth control in any form were prohibited. Individuals convicted of violating the Comstock Act could receive up to five years of imprisonment with hard labor and a fine of up to $2,000. As a nurse working among working-class immigrant women, Sanger met women who underwent frequent childbirth, miscarriages, and self-induced abortions because they had no information on how to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Seeking to help these women, Sanger visited public libraries, but she was unable to find information on contraception. She often told the story of being called to the apartment of a woman, Sadie Sachs, who had tried to induce her own abortion and become extremely ill. Sadie told Sanger that she had begged her doctor to tell her how she could prevent this from happening again, to which her doctor simply advised her to remain abstinent. His exact words and actions apparently were to laugh and to say, you want your cake while you eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. I'll tell you the only sure thing to do. Tell Jake to sleep on the roof. A few months later, Sanger was called back to Sadie's apartment apartment, only this time Sadie died shortly after Sanger arrived. She had attempted yet another self-induced abortion. Sanger would sometimes end the story by saying, I threw my nursing bag in the in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I had made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to control birth. Sanger opposed abortion, but primarily as a public health danger, which would disappear if women were able to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Given the connection between contraception and working class empowerment, Sanger came to believe that only by liberating women from the risk of unwanted pregnancy would fundamental social change take place. She launched a campaign to challenge government censorship of contraception information. In 1914, Sanger launched The Woman Rebel, an eight-page monthly newsletter which promoted contraception. Sanger, collaborating with anarchist friends, popularized the term birth control as a more candid alternative to euphemisms such as family limitation. Sanger proclaimed that each woman should be the absolute mistress of her own body. In these early years of Sanger's activism, she viewed birth control as a free speech issue. And when she started publishing The Woman Rebel, one of her goals was to provoke a legal challenge to the federal anti-obscenity laws, which banned dissemination of information about contraception. Postal authorities suppressed five of its seven issues, but Sanger continued publication, all the while preparing a 16-page pamphlet called Family Limitation, which contained detailed information and graphic descriptions of various contraceptive methods. 
In August 1914, Margaret Sanger was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws by sending the woman rebel through the postal system. Rather than stand trial, she fled the country. Margaret Sanger spent much of her exile in Europe, where she met with thinkers who helped develop socioeconomic justifications for birth control. She shared their concern that overpopulation led to poverty, famine, and war, and this would be a concern of hers for the rest of her life. Some countries in Northwestern Europe had more liberal policies towards contraception than the United States at this time, which is still the case, of course. And when Sanger visited a Dutch birth control clinic in 1915, she learned about diaphragms and became convinced that they were a more effective means of contraception than the suppositories and douches that she had been distributing back in the United States. Diaphragms were generally not available in the United States, so Sanger and others began importing them from Europe in defiance of United States law. On October 16, 1916, Sanger opened a family planning and birth control clinic in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, the first of its kind in the United States. Nine days after the clinic opened, Sanger was arrested. After multiple arrests, sentences, and jail time, Sanger still stated to a judge, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. For this, she was sentenced to 30 more days in a workhouse. After World War I, Sanger shifted away from radical politics, and she founded the American Birth Control League, ABCL, in 1921, which enlarged her base of supporters to include the middle class. The founding principles of the ABCL were as follows. We hold that children should be, one, conceived in love, two, born of the mother's conscious desire, three, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception except when those conditions can be satisfied. In 1922, she traveled to China, Korea, and Japan. In China, she observed that the primary method of family planning was female infanticide, and she later worked with Pearl Buck to establish a family planning clinic in Shanghai. After World War I, Sanger increasingly appealed to the societal need to limit births by those least able to afford children. The affluent and educated already limited their childbearing, while the poor and uneducated lacked access to contraception and information about birth control. Here she found an area of overlap with eugenicists. She believed that they both sought to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. She did not speak specifically about the idea of race or ethnicity being determining factors of fitness or unfitness. Instead, she stressed limiting the number of births to live within one's economic ability to raise and support healthy children. This would lead to a betterment of society and the human race. Sanger's view put her at odds with leading American eugenicists such as Charles Davenport, who took a racist view of inherited traits. However, in a history of birth control movement in America, Engelman noted that Sanger quite effortlessly looked the other way when others spouted racist speech. She had no reservation about relying on flawed and overtly racist works to serve her own propaganda needs. This association with eugenicists has understandably led to a lot of controversy. But her influence on women's reproductive rights is undisputed. Sanger's fight for birth control directly resulted in the following. 1918, doctors were first allowed to prescribe contraception. 1932, doctors were first allowed to save women's lives by sending pregnant patients to hospitals for abortions if they determined that childbirth would endanger the mother's life. 1936, physicians were first allowed to obtain contraceptives. 
This court victory motivated the American Medical Association in 1937 to adopt contraception as a normal medical service and a key component of medical school curriculums. In 1937, Sanger became chairman of the newly formed Birth Control Council of America, which eventually was renamed Planned Parenthood, a name Sanger objected to because she thought it was too euphemistic. In the early 1950s, Sanger encouraged the development of the birth control pill, which would became, become available in the 1960s. Sanger died of congestive heart failure in 1966 in Tucson, Arizona at the age of 86, about a year after the U.S. Supreme Court case Griswold v. Connecticut, which determined that states could not ban the use of birth control for married couples. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Courtney. Um so now let's move on to the texts themselves, now that you've set the stage for um, everything that was going on at the time. So first, I'll take her uh, 1918 speech, Morality and Birth Control, and then, Courtney, you'll take the case for birth control afterwards. So um, Morality and Birth Control was a pamphlet that Margaret Sanger wrote again in 1918. And I'm just going to read some excerpts, and then we can discuss them. So I will start with the very beginning of the pamphlet. She starts it this way. She says, quote, throughout the ages, every attempt woman has made to strike off the shackles of slavery has been met with the argument that such an act would result in the downfall of her morality. Suffrage was going to break up the home. Higher education would unfit her for motherhood and co-education would surely result in making her immoral. Even today, in some of the more backward countries, reading and writing is stoutly discouraged by the clerical powers because women may read about things they should not know. We now know that there never can be a free humanity until woman is freed from ignorance. And we know, too, that woman can never call herself free until she is mistress of her own body. Just so long as man dictates and controls the standards of sex morality— just so long will man control the world. That's the end of that quote. So I have a lot of thoughts about this passage. Um, I I think back to the very first, um, well, not the very first, maybe the, the second and third episodes of the podcast where we were reading The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner about um, the advent of the agricultural revolution. And that was, it was all the way back then when men began seeing women as producers of babies. And so women's bodies were seen as commodities, um, providers of pleasure for men and providers of population that the men could control. And so um, Lerner asserts that that's when men started thinking of themselves as owning women's bodies. And um, it just reminds me of more examples from that time forward of this um, concept that men and women both have bought into that men somehow have control and ownership or stewardship over women's bodies in ways that women have never felt about men's and boys' bodies. Um, okay, so let's see. The next point from this, from her pamphlet that I wanted to highlight. She shares a bunch of stories from her work as a nurse. She starts off by saying, for 14 years, I worked as a nurse in the factory and tenement districts of New York City. Eight years ago, I was called into a home where the father, a machinist by trade, was earning $18 a week. 
He was at the time the father of six living children, to all appearances a sober, serious, and hardworking man. His wife toiled early and late, helping him to keep the home together and the little ones out of the sweatshops, for they were both anxious to give their children a little schooling. Two years ago, I came across this same family and found that five more children had been added in the meantime to their household. The three youngest were considered by medical authorities to be hopelessly feeble-minded. Two of the older girls were prostitutes. Three of the boys were serving long-term sentences in penitentiaries, while another of the children had been injured by a fall and so badly crippled that she will not be able to help herself for years to come. Out of this family of 11 children, only two are now of any use to society, a little girl of seven who stays at home and cares for her crippled sister during the day while the mother scrubs office floors, and a boy of nine who sells chewing gum after school hours at a subway exit. The father has become a hopeless drunkard of whom the mother and children live in terror. This is but one illustration of the results of our present-day morality— Here was an opportunity for society to develop and preserve six children for human service. But prudery and ignorance added five more to this group, with the result that two out of the 11 are left to fit the struggle against pauperism and charity. Will they succumb? The the words prudery and ignorance stand out for me in that that last... Mm -hmm. Um, sentence because she's calling out the the kind of puritanical culture that where again the people in charge which happen to be all men at this time uh, not just happen to be they are like by definition all men at this time are deeming it inappropriate and obscene to even speak about how conception happens and they call that morality, right? And keeping women and men in ignorance of how of how conception happens mm-hmm. and who's suffering. Everybody, women and men and children, all human beings are suffering because of these rules. I want to bring up one more point from from this pamphlet. Um she says she points out a class issue, a and a, a division between classes. She says Quote, has knowledge of birth control so carefully guarded and so secretly practiced by the women of the wealthy class and so tenaciously withheld from the working women brought them misery? Rather, has it not promoted greater happiness, greater freedom, greater prosperity, and more harmony among them? The women who have this knowledge are the women who have been free to develop, free to enjoy in its best sense, and free to advance the interests of the community. And their men are the ones who motor, who sail yachts, who legislate, who lead and control. The women, men, and children of this class do not form any part whatever in the social problems of our times. Had this class, so the wealthy class, continued to reproduce in the prolific manner of the working people in the past 25 years, can human imagination picture what conditions would be today? All of our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. And if morality is to mean anything at all to us, we must regard all the changes which tend toward the uplift and survival of the human race as moral. Okay, so the first part, I'm on board. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I mean, this is this is the case, right? That, that 
the wealthy do often even that they're able to kind of get around the law. They're able to obtain the diaphragms that they need through like they have connections and they can pay right to, to get what they need for birth control or even obtain abortions that are more expensive. And then they, they don't talk about it. Right. And it's really the, the, the uh, less wealthy and the less advantaged and privileged who have to deal with this problem. Then she goes into some things where I kind of go, uh-oh, there. <laughs> that, that's where kind of it gets problematic, where she's referring to eugenics mentality, where I, I feel like it's one thing to express empathy for the plight of impoverished mothers, which she does, but then it's another thing to say, like, overbreeding among the working class and how that, um, it sounds like the upper class people almost had superior genes that she thinks like, oh, the world would be so such a better place if, if the wealthy class had just produced tons and tons of children. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and not just that the wealthy class had superior opportunities. Right. Um, so that to me is where it, um, it becomes problematic. And then in her last sentence of the pamphlet, she talks about how this is moral and, it leads to ultimately a cleaner race. Mm -hmm. And so it ends on a note that you just go, Oh no, (laughs) (laughs) you lost me. You lost me. Exactly. And, and I do want to say again, she, she's talking about a cleaner human race. She's not talking about the the Caucasian race, but nevertheless, that's really problematic. And I think Courtney, you're going to talk about that more in your pamphlet. And that's all I have for the first one. So do you, yeah. You want to take it away with the the case for birth control court? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the case for birth control, which was published in The Woman Citizen. Uh, I'm just going to start with um, how she starts. So everywhere we look, we see poverty and large families going hand in hand. We see hordes of children whose parents cannot feed, clothe, or educate even one half of the number born to them. We see sick, harassed, broken mothers whose health and nerves cannot bear the strain of further childbearing. We see fathers growing despondent and desperate because their labor cannot bring the necessary wage to keep their growing families. We see that those parents who are least fit to reproduce the race are having the largest number of children, while people of wealth, leisure, and education are having small families. So again, this phrasing of least fit to produce the race calls upon eugenics. She thinks that those who are poor and the working class are unfit to reproduce based on who they are as humans, while wealthy people deserve to have more children. Um, So probably a better phrasing would be um, something like those who struggle to be able to care for the children the way they wish they could, or um, how about accounting for families of diminished resources who do provide love and safety and dignity for their children. I know many of those families, um, and there are plenty of wealthy families who neglect or abuse their children. So it, it doesn't have to do with wealth or class or privilege. There are families who do provide for their children and families who don't. And it it doesn't matter what their their station in life is. So Sanger goes on to say um, situations when people should not have children. And she says um, people who are feeble-minded or insane should not have children. She also says that um, those who already have children who are not normal should not have any more children. So um, 
And even remember, those who experienced depression or other mental illness were considered insane. And she's saying that they they don't deserve to have children. So that's a really problematic idea and um, hits upon those eugenics that these people are unfit to have children. So and contribute to the human race. But she also states that um, people should not have children if they have gonorrhea or syphilis, um, which is understandable because um, before they were treatable, sexually transmitted infections could cause severe impact on newborns. Um, But then I think the next set of circumstances under which she says that couples should not have children are really compelling. Um, She states that the age of parents should be 23 for the mother and 25 for the father. So the average age of marriage in the 1920s was 21 for women and 25 for men. And Sanger recommends that couples should wait two years before having children so they can truly get to know one another. So then Sanger states that children should be three years apart, one year postpartum, which includes nursing the baby, then one year for recovery and rest and, you know, being able to enjoy motherhood, and then the next year for the next pregnancy. So the current average gap between children in the United States is two and a half years. And there's always been a lot of pressure on women, not only about when and how many children they should have, but also age gaps. Um, When I had my first child and she turned one, I got so many comments from people at church and even strangers about how it was time to have another baby. And people assumed I was pregnant or at least trying once uh, my baby turned one. I don't know, Amy, did you feel pressured about how close your kids would be or when to have kids? Yep. (laughs) Of course. Um, Okay, so Sanger goes on to say, it is generally conceded by sociologists and scientists that a nation cannot go on indefinitely multiplying without eventually reaching the point when population presses upon means of subsistence. While in this country there is perhaps no need for immediate alarm on this account, there are many other reasons for demanding birth control. So this is, um, if you still want to have 11 children, great. (laughs) But, um, Mm -hmm. but if you, if you know that you can only provide for one or two children, you should be able to make that choice to not have more than one or two or Or none. none. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So Sanger continues and says at present for the poor mother, there's only one alternative to the necessity of bearing children year after year, regardless of her health, of the welfare of the children she already has and of the income of the family. This alternative is abortion, which is so common as to be almost universal, especially where there are rigid laws against imparting information for the prevention of conception. It has been estimated that there are about one million abortions in the United States each year. So um, the Brookings Institute states that about 50 percent of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned, um, which is a much higher rate than other developed countries. And um, Washington University at St. Louis, um, their medical school states that birth control, when birth control is available at no cost, it decreases abortions up to 78 percent. It is important to remember that methods that women turn to um, when abortion is neither legal nor accessible are very serious. It's just it's very serious to think about what women had to turn to when they knew that they could not have another child. Mm -hmm. 
Um, And Sanger says, to force poor mothers to resort to this dangerous and health-destroying method of curtailing their families is cruel, wicked, and heartless, and is often the mothers who care most about the welfare of their children who are willing to undergo any pain or risk to prevent the coming of infants for whom they cannot properly care. Wow. So Sanger also, in talking about abortion rates at the time, um, the mortality rate of abortions in the early 20th century accounted for 20% of maternal deaths. So that is a, a very high percentage of deaths um, among women. Wow. So um, Sanger ends by saying, we want mothers to be fit. We want them to conceive in joy and gladness. We want them to carry their babies during the nine months in a sound and healthy body and with a happy, joyous, hopeful mind. It is almost impossible to imagine the suffering caused to women, the mental agony they endure when their days and nights are haunted by the fear of undesired pregnancy. When children are conceived in love and born into an atmosphere of happiness, then will parenthood be a glorious privilege and the children will grow to resemble gods. This can only be obtained through the knowledge and practice of birth control. Sanger makes such a clear argument here, and I have to admit I don't I don't really I have a hard time wrapping my mind around how someone could oppose this, really, um, that women are healthier and more able to contribute, truly more powerful when they can choose when and how many children they have. And she's she states also that um, the American Birth Control League desires the instruction in birth control should be given by the medical profession. Only through individual care and treatment can a woman be given the best and safest means of controlling her offspring. This makes me think of what we said before about um, disseminating the information about birth control. And I think this sets the stage for proper sex education to be given in schools, um, Mm -hmm. which is still an issue in the United States. Currently, sex education is mandated in only 24 states and the District of Columbia. And five of the states with the highest teen birth rates are not mandated to teach about contraception, but are mandated to teach abstinence. Mm-hmm. That's not surprising. No. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> and and yet they persist in this flawed logic that is in complete defiance of the data. So I think um, one of my takeaways, despite Sanger being a problematic person, is just being incredibly impressed and thankful for her work. Sex is such a taboo topic still in this country, and she made serious waves in giving women control over their own sexuality as well as their roles within their families. So I think it's really important to recognize like how important that work of birth control is, of making it accessible and affordable and okay to use. Well, thank you so much for being here, Courtney. Um, It was a joy to talk about this. I always learn so much from you. So thanks for reading these texts with me and thanks for being here. 